when day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace, and the norms and notions of what just is isn't always justice. And yet the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. You may recall that as an excerpt from Amanda Gorman's The Hill We Climb, which she performed at this most recent inauguration, January 2021. And it's a really good kind of um, focusing piece. I had a professor who always had us read a focusing piece before Mm -hmm. we started class. It's a good focusing piece to set up our conversation today. We'll just kind of get right into it. There's a lot there and actually uh, so much that we're going to cut this into a few episodes. Mm -hmm. So today we have part one of our conversation with a lawyer in South Africa, Johan Laurent. Johan, joining us in, in another several other time zones. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Casey. Thanks, Tim, for having me on. Uh, And greetings from Johannesburg, South Africa. Yeah, I think you certainly win the prize for our guest, the furthest distance from us physically. So far. I'll I'll take it. Up to this point, yes. Up to this point. We're going to need someone from Nepal next. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe just in your own words, Johan, kind of tell our listeners sort of, you know, what, what you have been focusing on um, in, in your work, kind of go from there. Right. So I'm a lawyer working for a small private law firm where our main caseload is challenging mining companies on behalf of mine workers and uh, communities affected by mining operations. So that's at a very high level what I do. So you've clearly become an, uh, an expert, or you might not refer to yourself that way, but but it, you certainly are compared to us in this. And and it's so fascinating. And and I would venture that a lot of our listeners may not be deeply steeped in in the history of of the work you've been doing. So I wonder if you could maybe start by just kind of laying some of that foundational history. Um, before we kind of get into your personal story a little bit later. Right. So uh, I've been in Africa now nearly 10 years, and it just has a delightfully but devastatingly complex history and milieu. Mm. And that starts from an indigenous population that obviously had its uh, had significant um, civilizational advances uh, long before there was an interaction with with the sort of formal West. Mm-hmm. Um, the first permanent uh, Western population to arrive in South Africa was 1652. Um, and there was then a re- relatively complicated 
a, a complicated history that unfortunately trends towards uh, white supremacy and domination, but in the complicated sense that, that humans always experience. And so something we were speaking about last week is that the race itself doesn't exist. There's no biological uh, distinction to right. race. And I think that's really important. And I think the South African story with strong parallels uh, to the United States, it really helps explain how race comes to exist, even though it doesn't exist biologically and, and through a very social lens. So from 1652, we have a permanent, uh, quote unquote, white population. From the, uh, the early days, there was some degree of fluidity around who could be recognized as human, who could be recognized as a citizen um, with a slave population that was principally imported uh, from Southeast Asia rather than the indigenous population. Uh, there are stories of people coming, being having grandparents as slaves who then were slave owners. And you then increasingly have a calcification of difference based on uh, this myth of race mm -hmm. and a myth of whiteness and something that I th that's very formative for my work because we work in uh, in fighting wits mainly um, mines and government support of mines is that the mining sector in South Africa really led to the calcification to the formation of of race, of there being a, an identifiable white population, identifiable black population. And what it's, it's a really fascinating history because diamonds, historically, people thought diamonds were found in rivers. And South Africa is the first place where diamonds were formerly mined, where there was a realization that if you dig deep into a certain type of rock, you will find more and more diamonds that, that just happen to be found in rivers at a later stage. So mm. South Africa transformed the diamond industry that, that, that uh, on a global scale and had this massive flood of people from around the world coming in to find their fortune in South Africa. And that flood initially included local indigenous populations who came to mine and make their fortune and hope to, you know, feature on a world stage. And in the initial diamond diggings where you would, you would get a, you would be able to claim a stake of uh, five yards by five yards or so, uh, black and white both were mining. And through that, um, the white population complained to the uh, British government that was overseeing the mining and said, we do not like competing with black people when we're mining. And one of the dominant reasons for that was that white people were coming from around the world and then hiring black labor, whereas black people from South Africa, or what is now known as South Africa, were coming and mining themselves. So they had stronger margins. They were able to compete more effectively and buy up greater and greater stakes. Sure. Uh, and so that was quelled through a formal prohibition on black ownership of mining stakes. And that then leads to a formalization, a which 
was not new to South Africa. There was always already a distinction based on pigment or melanin, but that led to a more formalized uh, structuring of race that then was further intensified when South Africa's gold mines were um, discovered uh, 20, 15 to 20 years later and then came to be further formalized uh, with, with the system of apartheid that was instituted from 1948, which by its nature, because it was building onto something that didn't actually exist, had to have absurd lines like, if you are black, but you have four different white ancestors, then maybe you're eligible to be classified as white arbitrarily. Or, you know, so there was this formalization of racial distinction that wow. uh, benefited, obviously, um, people who had money. So it's not that all white people benefited equally, but also then benefited white people generally, as opposed to black people and concentrated wealth and power in, in favor of one race, which then came to exist socially, even though it didn't exist biologically. In, in a way that we are now still struggling to, you know, that's still struggling to uh, do away with 25 years after one of the greatest global solidarity movements in world history succeeded in removing uh, the system of apartheid in favor of multiracial democracy that worked towards not racialism, but then, of course, is left with how do you undo distinctions of race when for hundreds of years you've been using it to accumulate wealth to one population, not another. Mm. I'm going to have to listen to that about 20 times. To yeah, there's, sink so, sorry. Thanks for letting uh, me ramble. A no, bit, it's, but, I, yeah. I have a, a very ill-formed question, but I'm listening to this arc and the, the story arc, and there was a pivotal point, I think, the, the white miners were hiring black labor and therefore their margins weren't as, as, as high. And so there was a point in time right then that black miners were actually, had greater economic gains there. Sure. And that wasn't, that you had said they, they didn't like that. So they, what, what did they do to change it? They lobbied the government of the day, which was the uh, on on one side of the, the Orange River was the British colony, um, to create formal prohibitions on black ownership of of mines, in order to eliminate the competition. And that was the the tipping point, the turning point. And and then you keep layering on economic progress. In that structure, that's when you get, you, you zoom ahead 70, 80 years to 1948, and that's when apartheid became formalized as a way to protect that. So I'm, I'm married to a historian, so I'm always very cautious in terms of having my sweeping narratives be too dominant. <laughs> so it is certainly a key moment in an ongoing process of crystallizing a distinction that doesn't exist in nature, but then came to exist in the society. What struck me about that is that without question, there's a narrative here in the United States, uh, and I'm certainly less familiar, uh, profoundly so, with South Africa, but there is um, a narrative here in the United States to perpetuate uh, 
sort of the the divide in in race here in America, you know, that well, mm-hmm. everyone has a fair chance. You just you just need to, you know, work hard and, and do your thing. And, you know, there it's just that certain people are aren't willing to put in the hard work. And what we hear foundationally in South Africa is in fact the people who perhaps are pushing that narrative now were the ones that weren't willing to put in the work. They actually lobbied the government to make sure they wouldn't have to, to work as hard as other people. I mean, that that's really striking. I'm probably oversimplifying it, but I just couldn't help but see that parallel. Yeah, and, and I think it's it can be useful sometimes to oversimplify to to see that narrative, but then also to come back to a situation where we all come from generations of ancestors who worked for what they achieved, and therefore we want a narrative yes. that justifies it. Yes. And to say that your ancestors worked for what they achieved should should not be, but often ends up being that where that it can be questioned because they had certain advantages. But the fact that they had advantages doesn't mean that they didn't work for it. Exactly. And and we need to have a nuanced narrative around that where we can be frank and and, and be disgusted with the advantages they had without saying that these are inherently evil people who who were lazy or something to that effect. Yeah. We need scope for that type mm-hmm. of nuance. Yeah. I had heard you say a, a few times, race, there isn't a, a biological basis distinction. I can't help but think of in what we're talking about right now, that the defenses that are available to each one of us, that those people who look different have some difference of their physical makeup or their biology or who they are. And it so quickly can and easily translate into characterological differences. Well, those people are lazy. Those people are fill in the blank, but how that can serve to insulate our own mind in allowing us to keep our own narrative of our own ancestry intact. Yeah, and and I think that's mm. really important to honestly interrogate that that we want to make assumptions that benefit uh, or, or that that paint us and particularly previous generations who we are who we've come from in a good light, where whereas you know it's this is not something that exists genetically, uh, and but socially has intense power that that Hmm. is built up over over time you had used a phrase early on when you started speaking that really struck me (laughs) and i want to make sure we call it out because i i think it's really something uh you talked about sort of this um debate perhaps uh, that wasn't the word used but but over who gets to be classified as human hmm. i hadn't i haven't necessarily heard that i mean certainly even in the, you know our, our own uh, foundational documents in the united states that there's remnants of those sorts of discussions but i hadn't heard it put so purely and so plainly 
like who gets to be classified as a full human yeah and it's i mean to me coming from uh not 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 having grown up in south africa it just seems so plain and simple you know when i moved here south africa had, had multiracial democracy for less than 20 years and it's just and already there are narratives of saying what's important is we must be colorblind and i'm i'm empathetic to that being a long term goal but how could you go from 1993 a person did not exist as a voter a person didn't exist in terms of having any human dignity in fact south africa created fake African states within it to say that you are not even good enough to be South African. You belong to this quote-unquote Bantustan that we will create and govern as a colony from this, uh, from a hundred kilometers away. You, you are a colony and you cannot be recognized as a citizen of our state. You cannot own land. You cannot vote. You cannot uh, marry someone of a different race, the fundamental questioning of your existence as part of the same species is so comes through so clearly from a policy perspective, not just people who are racist who we roll our eyes at because they've not come into the correct century. That was an entire nation state backed by, you know, Ronald Reagan, backed by other other conservatives around the world that was so deeply problematic and so recent and how we wrap our minds around that as, as our own generation, recognizing how recent that evil and it was evil was and what we then must do about it. That's so, so powerful and so important and so fundamental to our ability to define both people we interact with and be able to correctly see people as human, but also for our own humanity. I mean, how can we be human if we're not recognizing our fellow human beings as fully human? Yeah. If they weren't human, what were they? And I think that's really important to interrogate because people are not, racism doesn't come in a vacuum where you see someone who looks different and you just hate them. Racism serves a very particular function. And in South Africa, as we were discussing in the Diamond Mines, it became more and more clear throughout the establishment of formal uh, apartheid. Uh, racism allowed the accumulation of wealth for one population at the expense of the other. So you're not human. You are labor. You are a beast to create wealth for me, and we need to marginalize your humanity to make sure that that wealth is generated for me and, and my people. And I think we see that from uh, important histories, looking at the history of, quote-unquote, whiteness in the United States, as well from Nellor and Pater and others that say that initially uh, white people came as indentured servants and black people were also brought initially as indentured servants, not as slaves. And there was an important distinction between white and black laborers, mainly to allow people in power to divide them, to prevent them from having joint, uh, joint resistance to their accumulation of wealth. And so I think 
it's really important to think about racial distinctions not only as being they they're not illogical they have a logic from the time which is to allow power to entrench itself and i think that's really important and so you're not human uh, whatever else your label is you're not human because i need you to not be human because i need you to make money for me and if you're human if i recognize you as fully human as fully equal to me then i won't be comfortable asking you to do what i need you to do yeah and i think that mm. that dehumanization perpetuates itself and continues mm. as we bring in kind of the psychology piece a, a, as a mm. psychological defense right if because yeah. if i have to acknowledge that you're human that means i have to look at all kinds of things and i'm not probably prepared to do that yeah yeah that has to be right that's right cuz we said so so <laughs> in, in indeed in <laughs> AC has spoken. <laughs> <laughs> so, more recently, so you said you've been there for about 10 years. Mm. Yeah. Talk about um more recently the, the sort of the work that you've been doing. So, I have had the privilege of a lifetime to work for a boss who I admire intensely and and the best clients a lawyer could ever have in the world uh on cases that work on you know we we are not abolishing that system that system can only be abolished through sort of political and social movements it can't be abolished through the courts but we have been able to have the privilege of chipping and chipping away at the edifice that is white supremacy in in South Africa and so one of the cases that i came, i was lucky enough to come into the tail end of was the gold miner silicosis class action so uh silicosis is probably better understood in the united states as black lung so it is the dust that is created underground in a gold mine so africa had the most productive gold mines in the world for the last for the 20th century um but they were particularly deep and required intense blasting and that blasting created tiny dust that's called silica that gets into the lovely pink flesh of one's lung and mm. ruptures it and breaks it and in fact what's awful about silicosis is what then ultimately keeps you from being able to breathe properly isn't even really the dust it's the um scabbing in your lung trying to heal the wounds from the dust and so silicosis is a disease that has been understood since the 18th century and has been entirely managed in many contexts in uh, australia it was virtually eliminated in the 20th century in the us it was drastically limited uh, though particularly in coal mines continued to exist to some extent um but in enter for white mine workers who were principally in management it was almost eliminated but for black mine workers it continued to persist because the tools to prevent silicosis from happening are more expensive than black lives were at the time so it was a calculated decision by the gold mines of south africa that 
it will only cost us a few thousand rand, which is our currency here, to pay off someone who gets this disease, whereas it would cost us millions of rands to slow down the blasting schedule, to hose down the blasting and delay it, to pre- create ventilation shafts sunk you know, a mile beneath the surface, the Earth's surface, to make sure there's enough air to prevent people from breathing in this dust, this toxic dust. And so black mine workers, a third of black mine workers left with a deadly disease and they would be fired for having the disease that the mines had brought them and which can only be caused by mine dust. You know, it can't be caused by anything else. Wow. And then manifests in tuberculosis as well because you're more susceptible, more susceptible to it. So, so not, we, only, yeah. not only did, did, did they know what was going to happen, once it did happen, then they lost their income. They took their income away. Uh, yeah, and sent them home where they could not bring silicosis, but they could bring tuberculosis. So we have in rural South Africa... And across Southern Africa, in the Sutu and Mozambique, a pandemic of tuberculosis spread by the, that can be directly linked to rational decisions made by white mine board members to maximize their profits and minimize the benefits given to their workforce. So uh, all that, you know, everything in South Africa needs context. Um, yeah. But all of that say I had the privilege of coming in to work for Richard Spoor, a quite mad and brilliant lone ranger of an attorney who found that to be evil uh, and worked to bring a class action against mining companies uh, uh, that continued to perpetuate this evil in modern democracy and was able to participate both in some of the litigation around the class action and then some around the settlement, though you know, Richard deserves the preponderance of credit for that. And so that's, that's one of the cases chipping away at the edifice of apartheid that one can't even think of in another context. That's how entrenched this evil system was. And then... Um, I think the thing that strikes yeah. me about that, I'm sorry to interrupt you, is no, please. that there's, there's awareness. Like, it's not like, you know, oh, we discovered this after the fact, and I can't believe yeah. this happened. It's like, no, we know this is going to happen. And yeah. we're just going to keep going. Yeah. In, and, into and what and you were... It was a rational decision. It, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you are accepting the fundamental premises of capitalism that your job as a CEO or a board member is to maximize the return to right. your shareholder and minimize the costs. That was a rational to properly compensate black mine workers at the time would have been irrational. It would have been anti-capitalistic to had, had, had take care of black mine workers. Under the, the, under the assumption that, the black mine workers were not human beings. Yeah. Right. That's the, you have to sit under yeah. that assumption. Otherwise they, they wouldn't do that, make that choice if it were their children. Exactly. Though, I mean, the logic of maximizing returns to your shareholders, right. the logic of wanting to benefit yourself 
to the max uh, suggests that, in fact, what are the parameters? What are the lines? But yes, no, they they would not have done that to their own children. You know, their their internalized racism was part of that. uh, It has to be there. It it has, that has to be there. I can't help but think of this beautiful, beautifully tragic analogy of of silicosis itself being a metaphor for racism. Mm. We ingest it and it poisons us and degrades our flesh and in the attempt of the body to even heal itself is leads to why you can't breathe. Yeah. Because we can't yeah. heal ourselves from that all by ourselves. We need that external. We need the protection we, of people who are aware yeah. of the danger and, and continue to let them go into this environment that they that's completely preventable yeah i I think the other thing that i'm really struck by johan in your discussion of this particular situation you've talked obviously rightfully so sort of the, the logic of the decision the rationality of the decision and i think what's interesting just in thinking about our work and what tim and i have i would assume talked about on the podcast before Maybe not. If not, we certainly will. You know, we talk about our four dimensions of knowing, and there's the intellectual dimension, which often is where we think about that as the the logical, um, rational means of knowing and 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 understanding, and and that tends to get the most weight in terms of mm-hmm. um, validity of knowing. And I think this situation is a shining example of. Yeah, we can see from a sort of factual basis how in that system of operating economically, we understand the decision and (laughs) it wasn't a good one. And I think that speaks to Casey, that logic doesn't solely reside in the intellectual. Logic is also emotional. Logic is physical. Logic is spiritual. It is illogical to have a f- to ingest right physical pain. And physically, emotionally, and spiritually, we know when illogic is present. And I mm. see such a disconnecting. So intellectually, we can we can assume some really fundamental premises that let us turn the illogical into quote-unquote intellectual logic you can see the intellectual decision Mm -hmm. tree and go right makes sense and your body goes this is disgusting yeah um and and just uh, having listened to your brilliant podcast um oh we'll take it well thank you so i no i i think that's that is important to be interrogating for your listeners who are particular, particularly sensitive and open to this type of mm. processing that there, there is a deeper uh, rationality. But yeah. to expect, you know, just to allow me to be a little bit radical and pitch to them to do more than just listen to that inner instinct in their own work context, but to mm. push for more structural change. Mm-hmm. We were days away from this class action, which ends up costing mining companies 
hundreds of millions of rands, it could have, it, it might not have succeeded, in which case the logical rationality that, that you are correctly critiquing uh, would have prevailed. Uh, my my uh, boss, Richard, ran this test case for the first individual, lost, we have three le- uh, four levels of courts, it lost in the first level uh, with one, one judge ruling against us in the test case. The Supreme Court of Appeal that we have, which used to be South Africa's highest court, ruled unanimously against us, uh, against our clients to say you have no case to bring. And not only did they do that, they wrote three concurring judgments to say, this is how wrong you are, Richard. And in that context, our the American law firm that he was partnered with wanted to pull out. There was a questioning of the logic of the case from our fellow lawyers, and Richard pushed through to our constitutional court uh, and ended up arguing the case himself, which he hadn't done in the lower courts and because of weird complications around our South African system, and won a unanimous judgment that opened the floodgates to this liability. But if he had gone a different direction, it looks like this payout is going to affect more than 50,000, potentially more than 100,000 mine workers who all have, you know, uh, five to 10 dependents. A million people may not have benefited, uh, may not have received this payout. And that disgusting logic and rationale might have won out if a single decision had been made differently. So I think it is really important for people to be listening to their gut intuition and at their workplace, but also where they have the scope to need to be thinking about how they push for that beyond where they specifically have control and push for it mm. with their, in their families, in their friend groups, in their mm. local government elections, in their politics at a national level. These these things are so you know, evil can succeed so evil easily mm-hmm. um, if people if good people are silent. Well, and to me, Johan, that speaks to the this the structural yeah. insurrection, if you will, of racism, and mm-hmm. and we can have all the feelings we want about it, but but there are massive structures that are, you know, sitting on centuries of foundation that perpetuate these decisions. And it, it takes, it takes both, right? It, yeah. it takes chipping away at, at some of that structure and um, yeah. Wow. And, and, and to be very clear, I mean, it's very easy to praise lawyers like Richard who, who do deserve it. But more fundamentally, that case would not have happened if it wasn't for black mine workers who knew mm. their rights and knew what was happening to them was wrong organizing on individual level, organizing with unions and standing up and fighting for their rights to the level in which a, a lawyer then got involved. And I think that's really important to acknowledge and praise as well. Well, and it is that this is more of a sort of a, a law society question that uh, mm-hmm. certainly I don't know. It, it, is part of that sort of social movement 
necessary because, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I feel like I've heard it before, courts take into consideration their interpretation based on sort of the, 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 the society, the zeitgeist, if you will. Is that like, mm. is that why that matters? I, I think that's absolutely true. You know, courts, uh, I think, shouldn't be reflecting the individual wisdom of, you know, these esteemed judges. Courts' duty is to give effect to the shared decision, shared decisions that our societies make with deference to our elected officials. So the most important aspect is that we should have governments that respect us. And I think that's more important than any court or can ever be. And social movements should be focused on the levers of power. But then where the government ignores very clear claims to power and to rights, we need to organize social movements to partner with lawyers to push the courts to acknowledge where we are as a society that's been left behind and to recognize in this very easy example that yes, 50 years ago, black people's lives did not matter. And we as a society did not care whether they could breathe. Now we have moved past that in South Africa constitutionally, but certainly socially and politically. And even the South African government failed to give effect to black work, the significance of black people being able to breathe and to be compensated if they couldn't breathe because of white profit. And the courts then saw there was an avalanche of pressure and much more significant than any clever lawyering, which played a role, was the mobilization of unions of black workers, of civil society, to say, this is unacceptable in our society and courts, you must do something if, if government won't. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace. And the norms and notions of what just is, isn't always justice. And yet the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. Stay tuned for part two. <laughs> <laughs>